Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, September 19th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. Moses begins his third sermon to the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Here he begins to instruct Israel what to do on Mount Ebal after they have crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Jeff Dukeman. Pastor Dukeman serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. Pastor Dukeman, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Be good, good to be here. Let's start by talking a little bit of context today, Pastor Dukeman. We're looking in Deuteronomy 27, the first eight verses today. It's a, a bit of a transition here in the book of Deuteronomy. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text? Yeah, I, uh, I agree. It's right at the, uh, the beginning of Moses' third speech. And um, in order to understand that better, I, I always like to look at the larger context and even the biblical story as a whole. And so to start kind of at the, the widest we can, uh, when you look at the creed or some creedal statements or other statements uh, about Jesus, when you look at the Bible, it tends to associate God the Father with the beginning of the world, with creation, and the Son with the end times, or bringing the Father's will to completion um, through his life, death, and resurrection. So, so Jesus is especially associated with the end of the story. Now, they obviously always work together throughout history, but each has a, a proper work uh, associated with them, and that's the, the time frames it tends to be associated with. It becomes kind of important for the Old Testament as well, or maybe to say it differently, it has a foundation in the Old Testament. And uh, to see that, we can first look at the Old Testament as a whole, or as it's sometimes referred to, the Hebrew Bible. The original Bible in, in the Hebrew language, its original language, had a little different ordering of books than we have today. And there was an acronym that we, was used to describe this Hebrew Bible was the Tanakh, the letters T, N, and K. The T stood for Torah. That was the five books of Moses. The N was the Nephim, or the prophets, that actually began with right after the Torah with Joshua and Judges all the way up um, through uh, First and Second Kings and um, also included the major prophets. But then also at the end of the Old Testament, the end of that story was the Ketuvim, or writings. And Jesus alludes to this uh, at the end of Luke's gospel when he says, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there you have that, that Tanakh laid out, uh, the three parts. That there was a story with the beginning, middle, and end. And so Jesus kind of, um, if you look at the end of the Old Testament, there, in the writings, there's a lot of failure of Israel and looking forward to the Messiah who was coming and the, an, an elevation of the priestly office. So Jesus kind of uh, came in and was the true priest of the world there, um, kind of tacked on to the end. The New Testament was just kind of continuing that end of the Old Testament and the writings. 
Um, when we look a little, a little closer in at the, the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, I, I believe um, that there's actually, there's five books, but there's actually kind of a beginning, middle, and end of that story as well. And it kind of has a parallel in the Gospel of Matthew with the five sermons of Jesus, and yet there's kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end there as well, Holy Week being the most clear uh, there with the, the end of the story. Uh, with the, the last few chapters and, and, and uh, constituting Holy Week. <clears throat> but in, in the case of the Torah, Genesis is the first book. It was kind of a foundational history book. It was ancient history prior to Moses. Then Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are all centered largely at Mount Sinai. Uh, the, the Israelites are still at Mount Sinai uh, for most of those books. And there's the involves movement from Egypt to the to the edge of the promised land. But then Deuteronomy is uh, is just outside the promised land on the east side of the Jordan River. And it differs from the, the more plain prose of Leviticus and Numbers. It's kind of it talks about a heartfelt relationship between God and his people. And that involved Moses as well. It could even be described as Moses's last will and testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's a it's a story with a be. So the, the, the Torah is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Um, I don't know, feel free to jump in here anytime here, Pastor Apple, if you have any uh, thoughts. Well, I, I, I'd appreciate you bringing up again that, that this is Moses' last will and testament. I, we've, we've referred to Deuteronomy in a number of ways, often a farewell sermon or farewell address is somehow, sometimes the way we've talked about it. But I think last will and testament is another way to get at the gravity of these words. And, and particularly here, as we're starting chapter 27, and, and I know you'll talk a little bit more about this, but getting toward that, that last real, you know, that last sermon of Moses in the book, you, know, you, you do start to, to sense that the emotion that's there in Moses' words, the gravity that's there in Moses' words, he knows he's about to die. He knows he's not going to go over into the promised land with the rest of the people. He knows this is his last chance to implore to them to be faithful. And I, I just, you know, keeping that in mind really, I think is important for a book like Deuteronomy, where we're tempted to think of, oh, it's just one long sermon. I'm sitting here listening, blah, blah, it's boring. No, it's not. <laughs> this is this is a man who knows he's about to die, who's, who's you know, giving everything he's got for these people here at the end so that they will be faithful. It's always helpful to keep in mind for Deuteronomy, and I think particularly here as we're starting chapter 27. So uh, I, I echo all that. Keep 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 going. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, li- I like the, the concept of a farewell sermon too. You know, kind of matching up with Jesus's farewell sermon in uh, in John's gospel. It just mm. seems like there's a, a relationship between the two. Um, <clears throat> but if we zero in a little bit more on Deuteronomy itself. Uh, scholars have proposed many different outlines, and again, I'm, I'm, uh, I specialize especially in the Gospels, but I, I, I think I can hold my own a little bit on the Old Testament. But um, I see a uh, Deuteronomy itself having a story with a beginning, middle, and end, and um, and I think it it seems to correlate with the uh, three sermons that you mentioned, and so uh, chapters. I think it's probably the clearest in those would be chapters 12 through 26, where there's a collection of laws. Um, a lot of it is rehashed from the, uh, the giving of the law in, in Exodus. Sometimes Deuteronomy is called a, a second law, kind of um, with a title given to it. The word Deuteronomy means that, although that's there's a, a history to that as well. But it, but it, it, is, it does, uh, a lot of that does rehash 
what was given in Exodus, although now it's also there are some changes that reflect uh, a new situation, mm-hmm. namely um, after after the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, you had the incident with the golden calf right away, um, what in Exodus 32, 33, and you have the uh, the failure of the Israelites in the uh, in the desert in the in the wilderness in from the book of Numbers. So the context in Deuteronomy reflects a changed situation. There's already been a lot of failures. And so this re-giving of the law uh, reflects that, as there's, there's new content that, that reflects that. The, uh, the first sermon is Moses' opening speech. In the first three chapters, he re- rehearses recent history. And then chapters 4 through 11 are a call to covenant faithfulness. And then the final sermon comes in chapters 27 through 34, they're Moses' final speech. Uh, 27 through 30, chapters 27 through 30, are warnings. And late in the, in the book, Moses says he knows that the, the people will, will disobey and go into exile. And so there is this sense that he knows that, and, and God obviously behind him, knows that the people have failed before and there's going to be failures in the, in the future as well. But uh, so in chapters 31 through 34 in the book, that's... Uh, Moses' last words in death. There's a poem of warning, kind of rehearsing history a little bit in chapter 32, and there's a poem of blessing in chapter 33, and then the, the final chapter uh, deals with uh, Moses' actual death. So that's, that puts the, uh, again, the context within the book of Deuteronomy. It's our text from chapter 27 is the beginning of this last part, this last sermon or speech of Moses. And it's, it's after the rehearsing of the law, and now there's this thought of now how is Israel going to respond to this law this time? And, yeah. And what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that, that's that's right. We're at, we're at a pretty key transition point within the book of Deuteronomy. And, and one of the things that marks 27 as a, a pretty likely spot for, again, this third sermon to begin is that we actually have within the text Moses' name being mentioned again. Professor Harstad in his commentary points out that we haven't actually heard Moses' name in the text since back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I've, I've often, in reading it, been reminding people Moses is saying these things, but within the text, this is the first time since chapter 5 that Moses' name has been mentioned, and, and now he's going to begin speaking again, and, and we're going to see how the topic does change. As you mentioned, since about chapter 12, we've been hearing a variety of laws dealing with this is what life is going to be like in the promised land. Here's how you take the Ten Commandments and you apply them to your life in the promised land. Starting here in 27, again, as Moses starts to wrap up his whole book, this final farewell sermon he's giving, he's going to start saying, I mean, implying, or not implying, bringing about the seriousness of what he's spoken and why it is so important for them to hold on to it, to keep it. Today, what we're going to look at is a text in which he gives them something to do, particularly on Mount Ebal, that will set up the words that he's been speaking, the the word of God, as the foundation for their life in the promised land. So with that, let's, let's take a look at this text. We're starting in Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law, 
when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, concerning which I command you today, on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 to 8. As I mentioned, Pastor Dukeman, the text starts by specifically saying Moses is commanding, but we also have the elders of the Israel or the elders of Israel joining in with this command to the people. Talk a little bit about that that joint relationship here. We've got Moses and the elders commanding at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very significant, and uh, it has a parallel with just after our text in verse nine, where uh, it says Moses and Le- and the Levitical priests said to all Israel. So you don't just have, even though Moses was a, uh, a key leader of Israel, he wasn't a king. And in fact, he, he always pointed away to God. And there are various examples uh, from the Torah where we see that Moses and God uh, are, are dispersing uh, authority. It's not just centralized in one person. I think this is a good example of that. It, uh, it reminds me of um, Numbers 11, verses 13 through 16, where we see something similar. Moses says there, Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. These words uh, from Numbers, again, in the midst of these failures of uh, the people of Israel in the the Sinai wilderness, uh, come to to mind. uh, So these, these failures show the need for for additional accountability, additional leadership. Uh, and that, that's what we see in Numbers, and that's what we see here in our text, I believe. It also fits with uh, God's warning, warnings about a king in Deuteronomy 17, 14, a little earlier in the book, and also when we see the, the Israelites actually request a king in 1 Samuel 10, 19. In both those places, requesting a king is is associated with failure, with uh, with not trusting God, and with wanting to be like the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. So Israel not being set apart. I uh, couldn't help but think of our own country in the United States, where the founders drew heavily upon the Book of Deuteronomy and their political thought and writing the Constitution. And so that's a it's a, it's a good idea, I think, from a from a um, from that perspective. And um, we can even thank Ford to the book of Judges. I was watching a video on that recently, too, where it seems like the things just start to, to spiral more and more out of control over those 400 years or so to lead up to Israel getting a king with King Saul 
who immediately had problems, obviously. So um, there was this history of Israel at the beginning from Moses until the time of, of Saul, uh, King Saul, where you see this more limited government and you see that it wasn't just one king, but it was um, it was dispersed authority and, and dispersed leadership, uh, leaders working together. Hmm. I, just real quickly, Pastor Dugman, I, I do think that this is a, a pretty important moment here that the elders do speak up. On the on the one hand, I think it makes a lot of sense in the context of where we are in the book of Deuteronomy, because as Moses is winding his sermon down and he knows he's about to die, someone else is going to be speaking the word of God in his place. And as a part of that, you know, Joshua obviously is going to be the main leader of the people, but these elders are going to play an important role as the spiritual leaders for the people of Israel going forward. And so it, I think just, again, in the in the story of Deuteronomy, thinking about Moses' upcoming death, it makes sense that the elders begin to speak here particularly. The people need to recognize Moses is no longer going to be that one speaking the word of God. They need to be ready to to hear the elders as well. And and then just, you know, as you were talking about the the text from Numbers 11 and thinking about the ways in which other people do participate in leadership aspects in the people of Israel, even when Moses is, quote, the guy, that, that took me all the way back even to the beginning of Deuteronomy. In chapter 1, when Moses starts his first sermon, one of the first things that he reminds the people about is that time in Exodus 18 when the Lord told, or when Moses began to set up other judges besides himself. And, and thinking back when to that sermon as Moses preaches it at the very beginning, that becomes a, a pretty, that's a, a fairly faithful moment for the people of Israel. When they listen to Moses, when they're willing to receive these other judges who handle the the smaller cases to take some of the burden off of the people of Israel. And it it's just, it's striking to me that now here in, in 27 verse 1, suddenly the elders come back into view and participate in that. It, it seems to be all a part of this larger part the larger theme of Deuteronomy that Moses is imploring the people to faithfulness as he's about to leave it for a variety of reasons it seems very fitting that the elders show up and as you point out the priests are going to show up in verse 9 and in the text we'll look at tomorrow it it seems like a perfect moment for all this to happen so a small detail in the text and yet one I do think that is is pretty significant uh, talk more about verse 27, the, the word for commanding. It shows up m- multiple times just in that one verse, so it, it must be pretty important. Yeah, um, I, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me. It's, I think it's mitz, mitzpah, as I recall. There's, it happens uh, three times in this verse where um, I can just read the verse again here. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people. There's that, again, I think it's mitzpah, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So he commands as a verb, then the commandment uh, is the uh, noun form of it, and then that I command you, uh, again, uh, the verb form of it. And so <clears throat> this is a, uh, it's a command, it's a different um, word that then will be used uh, a little later in the text when it talks about um, the commandment of God in, in the sense of the, uh, the, uh, the, the Torah, sometimes we call it a law. We might associate that with a command, like the ten, or or another term that's used here in a, in a little bit later in the text, the the ten commandments is actually the ten words, and so um, just because it's saying that Moses was commanding them, it isn't. It, it, we should, I don't think we should interpret it as just saying, well, you better do this or else it's all on you. 
it has a larger context of the promise of God and uh, and God's um, God's supporting his people. His his grace uh, is what keeps them as his people. His his forgiveness is uh, is what sustains them as his people. So he's commanding them, but it's not in the sense of just a um, just a law that's told that's just on them. It, it's it's rather their their covenant words and um, that include uh, kind of the law in a, narrow, a more narrow sense of uh, of, of uh, you need to do these kind of things. Um, but it, it's a command that's that's encompassed with the uh, with, with the covenant of God, the, the bereath, you know, uh, and the uh, the promise of God, which we'll talk a little bit more in a second. But uh, yeah, so it's 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 Moses and these these leaders of Israel who are um, imploring the people to to maintain to 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 be faithful to the covenant of God. Mm. Well, and and then just for the the last v- word of that verse to do so today, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. We've seen this elsewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, how Moses takes this this law of God that had been given on Mount Sinai when the the previous generation was large and in charge, and now he tells this new generation about to enter the promised land, hey, this is the word for you today. He he brings it all into the present tense for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a... uh, there's a great, uh, he's, he's an ELCA, or he just passed away recently, uh, an ELCA scholar named Terrence Fretham, who is a, who's an Old Testament scholar, and uh, he really does a good job in looking at texts like this. I think he focuses especially on Genesis, Genesis and Exodus, but, but how, um, how the, this covenant um, to, to Israel that was, had its foundation in the promise of God, going back to Genesis uh, 315, but also to uh, God's promise to Abraham about the promised land and, and, and Abraham's offspring, how it is applied uh, afresh to each generation, uh, both in terms of God's promise of, of, of um, being their God and, and giving them salvation, but then also in terms of you know what, what we call a kind of a narrower sense of a law and, and vocation, as it comes out a little more clearly uh, with the, the Sinai covenant, uh, that it, it, it still has to do chiefly with, uh, with God's promise. And, uh, but it also, uh, shows them, here's what you are to do to live as God's people, as this new nation that's coming out of, out of Egypt. You are, this, these are, are rules to, to guide you as my set apart people. And here too, in this changed situation of, of already living for a little while as God's, as God's, uh, nation of Israel, and having failures here again, it, it, it's applied specifically to them and their circumstance uh, with those failures now in their the rearview mirror that this is today. I call on you to be faithful to God and to this is how you should live as his people. So with that word today, a present tense verb or present tense word, then Moses in verse two begins to look into the future on the day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. We've got about three minutes here before our break, Pastor Dukeman, so we can get started on this conversation, and we'll pick up more on the other side. Uh, what what is Moses? What's he looking forward to here as as he begins into verse two? Yeah, these are. Um, this is now the future tense, as you alluded to, and uh, these words from this part of our, are from our text are going to be fulfilled in Joshua eight mm. after the. Um, after the Israel, after Joshua leads the Israelites 
into uh, to the promised land, to uh, Jericho, and uh, we see these things fulfilled as Joshua and the Israelites uh, carry out these these commands. But this future is built upon uh, God's promise in the past. Um, verse 3, which we'll, we'll get to, um, it, it says, uh, And you shall write on them the word of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, it talks about the uh, the uh, the promise, yeah, as the Lord your God is giving you a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. There's that word promise. It's a promised land, and it's God's promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 12 with the promise to Abraham, and ultimately again back to Genesis 3:15 uh, to to the to the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. So. They're words that look towards the future. They're uttered in the in the, the present, but they have a foundation in God's promise in the past. And so God will work to bring to be faithful to his promise and carry out what he promised. Well, let's let's take our break there and we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at the first part of Deuteronomy 27 with Pastor Jeff Dukeman. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, September 19th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 to 8, with the Reverend Dr. Jeff Dukeman. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Gulfport, Mississippi. Pastor Dukeman, prior to the break, we left off in verse 2 of our text, where Moses begins to speak to the people of Israel of what they will do on the other side of the Jordan River, a promise for the future, built on what God has said in the past. I think, you know, I mean, just one thing that's there in verse two that is probably important to mention is, is notice that, you know, Moses says, on the day you cross over the Jordan, there's there's no doubt about what's going to happen. This will happen because the Lord has promised it and it's a done deal. Now here's how you act when the Lord fulfills that promise, as you know he will. And he talks about what you're going to do there on, on Mount Ebal, as we'll, we'll find out. You're going to set up large stones, plaster them with plaster, uh, keep taking into this action that Moses gives them to do on the other side of the promised, or the other side of the Jordan River. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, kind of in keeping with uh, looking back to this promise of God in the past, uh, the promise to Abraham, it was started to be fulfilled uh, through Moses leading uh, the, the people through the Red Sea waters, that, that great miracle, the great foundational 
miracle that began their journey toward the promised land. And as often happens in the, in the Old Testament, um, you, you'll have different uh, uh, water miracles or different uh, exiles or exoduses that later in the Old Testament were are, are building on that foundation of earlier in the Old Testament. Similar things happens. So too here, um, just as God brought uh, Israel out of slave, slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, now he's going to bring his people through the waters of the Jordan River into the promised land, again, in a, in a miraculous way. And um, there's also a tie to the past in the, uh, in this mention of an altar of stones. This recalls for me uh, Jacob or Israel making a pillar of sto stones in Genesis 28 when God appeared to him on the stairway or ladder to heaven. Here Jacob, uh, just after he tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright, was called by God to leave the promised land to find a wife. So, so Jacob was in the promised land. We know that um, that you know, a, J, uh, excuse me, Abraham himself never really owned any land in the promised land. It was, it, and that was kind of the case for the uh, the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob generally. Uh, that the real dwelling in the promised land would come would come later. But this is another example of that where. Jacob has to flee the promised land because he's afraid of Esau uh, attacking him. And, uh, and so he does so in faith, uh, knowing that God's promise that he'll come back to the promised land will be fulfilled. And so as he leaves the promised land to find a wife and to uh, escape from his, his brother Esau, there's a, this theophany, this uh, stairway to heaven, and the theo uh, where, where God appears to, to uh, Isaac, excuse me, to uh, Jacob. And uh, he was commanded to set up an altar of stones as reminders of God's care for him and the promise uh, to Abraham about, about this land that, uh, that Jacob's descendants would, would, uh, would eventually possess. Here I uh, also uh, can kind of borrow from uh, our LCMS brother, Chad Bird, and, and his uh, 40 Minutes in the Old Testament uh, podcast. He makes some parallels here. Uh, with Mount Sinai. Uh, in our text, uh, Moses is on a mountain, and just as, Mose, just as Moses was on a mountain earlier on Mount Sinai, in this case, he's on Mount Ebal, which um, it's kind of a connection I made this morning is it's actually uh, Ebal is where the curses would be proclaimed. So th they divided the, just after our text, um, Moses had the tribes divide Six of the tribes were to be on Mount Ebal and pronounce curses, and six were to be on Mount Gerizim and pronounce blessings. So they're actually on the mountain uh, where the curses would um, would be pronounced. And uh, maybe we can, if we have time, we can maybe talk a little bit more about uh, blessings and curses uh, at some point as well. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so both whenever Moses was on Mount Sinai uh, earlier, and now he is on uh, Mount Ebal. Uh, both will both situations involve stones with words of Torah on them. We think of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words um, being given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and here on Mount Ebal, God speaks about uh, putting words of Torah on these stones. Both involved building an altar of stones nearby, mm. and um, and there's some other there are other parallels as well. But but again, you get this sense that. Uh, just as 
as um, God was, was being faithful and giving his Torah or teaching to Moses on Mount Sinai, he continues to be faithful to his people in this new setting on a different mountain, Mount Ebal, uh, where he puts his, his words uh, on, on stone as if to, to, to last for, for you know, indefinitely and uh, as, as signs uh, of, of his, uh, his faithfulness. And again, this, the stone uh, pillars or altar uh, is a place of worship. It's where you praise God. For, for his deliverance, praise God for giving his word to his people, for giving these promises to his people. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the connection to Mount Sinai is a good one. And just to, to help us picture this in our minds of what's spoken here, you know, in verse 2, they are to set up these large stones and plaster them with plaster. My understanding is that they would, they would put the plaster onto the stones in order that there was this, you know, smooth white surface on which then they could write. And and so that's the, the purpose of the plaster is to make these stones, which as, as we'll find out are not cut stones later, They're, that's a specific command from the Lord. These, these stones have been plastered so that they can very easily write, as it says, all the words of this law. There, notice in, in more than one place that's mentioned about writing the words of this law. And so maybe since it's, it's right there in, in verse three, maybe we can pick it up right now. What is it? What are the words of this law that they are to write on these plastered stones? How, how much are we, are we talking about here, you think? <laughs> well, you know, again, I, um, I can, uh, just from my listening to, uh, to Pastor Bird's, uh, to, to Chad Bird's podcast, um, he kind of came to the conclusion he wasn't quite sure. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. it, could be, uh, it could be just the words of Deuteronomy, that might make sense um, that if you have large stones and whenever you think of, um, you know, a pillar of stones for an altar, it's not just, you know, a foot high. It's probably, a, you know, a good sized uh, monument. So I, I think there would be room to write all the, the words of, from, from Deuteronomy, which would kind of make sense because it's kind of tied to what Moses is specifically saying in Deuteronomy. You know, this place is tied to what Moses is saying from Mount Ebal uh, here on, on the east side of the Jordan River. It's those words of Deuteronomy are tied to this place. And so that, that would be my best guess. Um, and, uh, but but I'm, we're not quite sure, but it at least includes something within Deuteronomy. But, but my guess would be perhaps the, the whole book of Deuteronomy. But that, that's, just, that's just my best uh, educated guess. Right, right. It's hard to, I mean, it, it, it's not as specific as maybe we'd like it to be the words of this law. And, and from what I understand, the, the altar that is described here would be big enough such that the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy would, in fact, fit on the, on the, the altar that's described. I, I kind of wonder, and again, this is just, you know, trying to think through the, the context of Deuteronomy and, and other things. You know, I kind of wonder if the words of this law might be specifically referring to the Decalogue. And, and part of the reason I, I wonder that is because of, again, just thinking through the way Deuteronomy has played out. Moses begins with not long after what happens on Mount Sinai in his recounting to the people of Israel. And he's, he's talked about what happened on Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. And in chapter five, which is where, you know, that's the last time we've heard the name of Moses, where you, you might consider chapter five through 26, although there is that dividing point you talked about in 12, it, that, that could be one long sermon. If you do that, 
then chapter five begins with the Decalogue, the words of this law. And so I, I kind of wonder mm. if, if maybe that's what's in mind here too. You know, Moses, again, as they're preparing to enter into the promised land, he's drawing them back to that very foundational text from the Old Testament of the Decalogue, these 10 words. Again, as, as you said, we can't know for sure. And to think of the whole book of Deuteronomy, that's fine too. But I, I kind of, there's a, I think a nice parallel perhaps if it is the Ten Commandments, you know, that's what was in the Ark of the Covenant as well. You had the, those stone tablets were there. Uh, again, not not for sure, but that's maybe the way, if you if you force me to say one or the other, that may be the way I'd lean, and that's why. Yeah, and I, and I, I take no issue with that. Again, I, um, mine is just a, is just an, an educated guess. Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but uh, it's certainly the, uh, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words would have been at the foundation of that. And I, lo- I love your point about within the Ark of the Covenant, that's, that was the, the, the Torah that was there was the Ten Commandments. And I know that um, just kind of perusing the, the rest of Deuteronomy after our text, I know that this, this uh, expression, this law, appears a few more times uh, in, the, in the chapters to come. So it, 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 whatever it is, it, it, it's very important. And it, and it, you know, even if we just look at the Ten Commandments, um, you know, that the, the Jews, um, the Jewish people, uh, they, they reckoned the, the first commandment a little bit differently than we do. We, we as Lutherans, and I know different denominations do it slightly different from each other, but uh, we tend to start with, you shall have no other gods before me, but really, um, you know, the verse before that is, is, is part of the, the dialogue or part of the, the discourse um, of Moses. It says in, in chapter 5, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who yeah. brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so certainly that is, a, um, that is the, the gospel in a, uh, in a nutshell there, you know, that the, the foundation for all of God speaking to his people, both through uh, words of law and, and, and words of, of salvation and, uh, and narrative of deliverance all have their foundation in that, that, uh, that, that God is the one who brought his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, uh, in fulfillment of his promise to his people from a bold. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and regardless of, of whether it is the whole book of Deuteronomy or just the 10 words, I mean, this is the word of God that's forming the foundation. That is what is to be displayed. And Moses makes it uh, clear at the end, this should be written very plainly. So in, in writing that is intelligible, right? good good handwriting, not mine, apparently. This is, this <laughs> mine is, either. Yeah, this is good handwriting <laughs> so that it can be read and understood by anyone who's who's walking by and they can see this is the word of God. That's going to be the, the foundation. And again, how often have we seen that in the book of Deuteronomy, thinking back to, to chapter 8, that man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here, the word of God is going to actually be written on these plastered stones. Now, as, as a part of these plastered stones, we're also talking about an altar here. It's, it's an altar of stones. And Moses, in oh, it's verse 6, and verse 7 talks about what will be offered on this altar on Mount Ebal. He talks about both burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then you'll, you're going to eat there. This is something that maybe we in the New Testament sometimes forget about, and we just kind of lump all that together. Okay, it's an altar for sacrifices. But Moses mentions two different sacrifices, and it's worth our time to understand what each of those were and, and what that teaches us about what's happening here on Mount Ebal. So, so take us into that context. Yeah. First of all, um, it, it shows pretty clearly that there is 
a, a priestly context to what Moses is doing here. You know, Moses has been an intercessor to God for the people whenever they've made mistakes. And these offerings are, are further, uh, they are illustrative of that. Um, when I think of the priestly office, again, I think of ultimately the, the death of Holy Week and the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. You know, and here at the end of Moses's life, at the end of his instruction to the people, it just seems to make sense to me as they are, you know, they're hearing this contract, if you will, um, or this covenant is better. But uh, ancient, ancient, um, ancient contracts would often involve blessings and curses like we find after our text. There's two chapters almost of, of blessings and especially curses. And um, so whenever you, you look at those and a threat of curses, it makes sense that it is a priestly context because whenever the people, um, whenever they do fail, as Moses predicts, prophesies that they will, that, that there will be uh, salvation uh, from God's uh, Messiah and from forgiveness. And those things are prefigured in these, uh, these sacrifices. And to look a little bit more at them, um, Leviticus 1 through 7 is the part of Leviticus that um, describes or prescribes what the sacrifices of the Israelites were to be. And as I look at those chapters, or as, I, as I've thought about them, there tends to me to be a movement from more what we say is original sin uh, through more kind of or more ordinary sins to kind of the worst actual sins, you know, uh, covering all of life. And so the the burnt offering is prescribed in Leviticus one. And again, I kind of associate that with the, the original sin of the Israelites. And uh, here the whole animal, with the exception of the entrails that were washed, uh, the whole animal would be burnt on the bronze altar just outside or just east of the entrance to the tent of meeting as a pleasing aroma to God inside the temple as God dwelt in the Holy of Holies there on the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The other offering was from the other end of the spectrum, if you will. Leviticus 7, again, the kind of the end of this uh, Leviticus 1 through 7, giving you all the different offerings uh, or sacrifices. Leviticus 7 is the conclusion of these prescriptions for offerings. And Leviticus 7 details how the peace offering was unique and that the worshiper would be allowed to eat it. So I believe every other one, the people were not allowed to. There were some where the priest could, some where nobody could, like the burnt offering. But this is one that was unique in that the worshiper would be allowed to eat it. And maybe there may be another one. I, I haven't studied that for a little while, but uh, as I heard this described, this uh, this peace offering, it could genuinely be described as a party, perhaps anticipating things we know today like the Lord's Supper, and uh, even uh, which itself is an anticipation of the Feast of Heaven. So the crossing of the Jordan River would recall God's promise, but also would be a fulfillment, a celebration of its fulfillment. Uh, again, as verse seven says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the priestly aspects of our text, these sacrifices, they come from the near the end of Deuteronomy, and they anticipate the true high priest who would come, Jesus. So there's this thought of both, both, both sides of a priestly theme, that there's going to be a need for forgiveness whenever 
uh, Israelite sins and fails in, when they're measured up by the law. But flowing from that forgiveness is also this restored joy and anticipation of eternal life in heaven. They're both looking towards the future is the way I would put it. The, the cross and resurrection of Jesus look to the future, how he's opened up the door to heaven to us, for us by, by dying for the worst of our sins, things that would keep us, uh, you know, that might threaten us on our deathbeds or in our worst times. But it's, it's, it's not just forgiveness. It's also uh, an anticipation of, uh, of, of eternal life. And it's a, uh, it's a peace and a joy in the present to know that, uh, that we are justified in God's sight, that we are forgiven. You used the word joy a couple times there at the end, and I think that's such a, an important word to keep in mind for a text like this. And again, the whole of the book of Deuteronomy. Notice that you know, after the burnt offerings and the peace offerings are described, it is you shall eat there, as you were saying, the peace offering particularly included the eating together of the people. And then Moses says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And I mean, what a, what a wonderful reminder of, of how how Christian worship, the true character of it really is, is a joyful thing. And we, we've been talking about the the serious nature of Moses' words, the gravity of his words here at the end of his life as he's imploring the people to faithfulness. But this, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you can see Moses, how do you picture Moses' face? Well, one, it's it's shining. We, we know that his face shines when he talks <laughs> to the people. We should remember that. But, but at the, yeah. I mean, like, do you picture him frowning? Do you picture him smiling? And I suppose at, at various moments within the book Deuteronomy, it's, it, there's both. But the, the joyful nature of his words and the joyful nature of what he describes here is something that I, I don't think we should, we should lose and we really want to hold on to, that this is going to be what Moses is describing, which, as you mentioned, is going to be fulfilled in Joshua 8. This is going to be a joyful moment for the people. Because, and, and why wouldn't it be? The, the Lord has fulfilled his promise to bring them into the promised land. Of course there's going to be joy. Sometimes, I, maybe this is just me, but I think we picture these things in such a, a somber way, and we shouldn't. This is a, this is a joyful text, and, and Moses is describing things that will happen on Mount Ebal that will bring them great joy. It's something we shouldn't lose. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that brings to my mind, I mentioned a little earlier, you know, this, this kind of tension between cursing and blessing. Mm. You have both of them. At, for the, this last sermon of Moses here, you've got a lot of both of them. And so in the immediate context, just after our text, as I said, you've got a whole lot of curses, and some of them are really nasty. You, you know, 20, the end of 27 has a number of curses, then you've got blessings from uh, chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, but then you've got curses again, again, some, some really horrible uh, things described from verses 15 all the way to the end in verse uh, 68. And so it, it's easy to think, well, yeah, boy, that he was just ticked off when he was saying these things to him. And I, you know, I, I think it is, it's a, it's a warning. There's certainly obviously that involved, but I think if we looked at it from the perspective of the Messiah, um, I think that puts things into their proper focus that, and, and there's, there's also in the book of Matthew, there's this similar tension between cursing and blessing at the beginning of Jesus's first sermon in Matthew the Beatitudes begin with blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. And, but then the, the beginning of his final sermon in Holy Week starts out with, woe to you Pharisees. Uh, there's whatever, the eight, eight woes or eight curses of them. And the way that I especially think of these things is that this, these curses should really be thought of in a priestly context, first and foremost, that the, Moses is saying the people are going to fail, and yet... God's still going to bless them. So he, he even talks about how 
they'll be taken into exile, but if they call upon God and repent, that God will, will bring them back. And so, so those curses, and I think Galatians 3.10 kind of, um, it appeals to, to one of these verses in here about, uh, about being cursed. Hmm. Um, cursed is the one who doesn't fulfill all the words of this law, I think it is. And so these curses ultimately find their home at the cross, that Jesus is the one who will be cursed for his people's sins, for the worst of the things they do. And he, he, he takes that curse in order that we can be blessed. And that's, that's where kind of the end of the book of, of Deuteronomy in, in chapter 33, Moses' final words are, are words of blessing. Mm. And so you see God's true face there. Um, so it's not to belittle human sin, and it is a warning that you should you know, be faithful from your perspective and try to live out the life God wants you. But, but ultimately, the Old Testament and the, uh, is a story of Israel not living up to the law, and needing the Messiah to come and, and bear that curse for them. Yeah, and, and to point from this text very clearly to Jesus in that way is, I think, absolutely appropriate, the, especially the priestly connection, the sacrifices, and, and as you said, thinking forward into the next text, the matter of the curse that comes, that is fulfilled by Christ. He takes the curse for us so that we have God's blessing. Uh, one, one more detail in this text that I, I think we should at least mention, and I'm curious if you if you found the same thing that I did, the the Lord commands that this altar be made of uncut stones. You're not to wield an iron tool on them. What I what I saw suggested that that's probably connected to the first commandment in the matter of creating images in place of God, and and even in with in this very context. In the next text, we'll look at in verse 15. There's the the curse against the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. So you have that thought of of cutting things to become an image, mm. and and perhaps that's the the reason here for the command of uncut stones. There's to be absolutely no question as to the fact that this is an altar to the true God, not an altar to some some idol that you have to make an image of. I, that was what I found. I was curious if you had any any other information. I I really like that. You know the the one other interpretation I had heard, um, you know, that sometimes a, um, it might've been from the Mishnah or something, I can't remember, but, but, um, that a metal could be, could sometimes be a, an instrument of war. And so this is going, going to be, um, you know, the opposite of that. It's going to involve peace. And by, I think I like yours, <laughs> I think I like yours better, uh, because that certainly, uh, the people would have been acutely aware of, of that, uh, that, the nations around them, and especially the the, the nations, uh, or you know, the, the Canaanites living in the Promised Land, had all of their, their pagan gods and their their idols that you know think of kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, you know, idols made with human hands mm, uh, that yeah. can't they can't they're they're dead you know they can't they can't do anything because they're dead as opposed to the to the living God. So um, so yeah, I, I think that there certainly would have been concern about that. Uh, and I say, again, that word peace comes to my mind that this is a place of peace. You know, so if you, if you work in a workshop, if you have like a, like today you have like a power saw, <laughs> it's pretty unpleasant, you know? Uh, and so I know in other places in the old Testament, when we talk about uncut stones, it's like they could, they could be cut. Sometimes they could be cut at the quarry, but not when they come on site, you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing that this is going to be a place of peace and reverence and, uh, and, uh, a place for worship not a place for uh, this, this strenuous working, which more resembles what you might have to do with one of these pagan gods or something. Mm. Yeah, well, and, and what you had said earlier, too, about the 
the connection to Mount Sinai. And you mentioned that right after, you know, it's right there on Mount Sinai where Aaron makes the golden calf. On Mount Ebal, when this happens, there will be no question that this is worship of the true God, as he has commanded and not as people have, have made up for themselves. We've got about uh, two yeah. minutes here, Pastor Pastor Dugman. Can you help us wrap up, point us again to Christ from this text in Deuteronomy 27? Sure. Yeah, this is the end of the, uh, towards the end of the Torah of Moses. And that word Torah means teaching. It is uh, words of law and gospel. It's the entirety of uh, the five books of Moses are the teaching. And, you know, Jesus in his life was the, the greatest rabbi or teacher of all. And he taught the Torah, but he also showed not just its, in, in, in its original context, but showed how that Torah was fulfilled in himself, that it, it was pointing to him. And in this case, we see Moses near the end of his life not being able to go into the promised land. Uh, because of uh, uh, of some of his sins, uh, striking the, the rock at Meribah, I believe it was, was one of the things. Uh, and, he, and he recalls many of the failures of the, the people of Israel. And yet, uh, and he warns them about future failures, but the overarching context is God's covenant faithfulness, that God's promise will not fail, that God's words in his words of teaching in this, this, this great body of, of, of teaching, the Torah, that he is that God will be faithful even in spite of, of failures, and he would uh, send his son to fulfill those those sacrifices to to bear the curse of the law for us, so that we could be forgiven and be blessed with this covenant blessing uh, from our great God, uh, who is our teacher, who is our God, who who blesses us in every way uh, by making us his people as part of his promise and covenant. The Reverend Dr. Jeff Dukeman is pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Gulfport, Mississippi, helping us today with Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Dukeman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you very much, Pastor Apple. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy 27, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.